Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, New Trends in Behavioral Safety, Success Stories and Lessons Learned, sponsored by Aveda. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our panel of experts today includes Lori Kanapi, Krista S. Geller, and E. Scott Geller. Lori is a CSP, ASP, and CLSC who serves as an HSE professional with Aveda and has more than 20 years of industry experience. Krista is president of Geller AC4P Incorporated, a consulting and education training organization she co-founded with her father, who recently completed his 50th year as a teacher and researcher in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Tech. As with his daughter, E. Scott Geller carries a PhD, but Drs. Geller also have co-authored various books, including The Human Dynamics of Achieving an Injury-Free Workplace, Safety Directors from Psychological Science. Again, we thank you all for being here today. Lori, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay, great. Thank you so much, and good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. With the increased meetings, webinars, and virtual events right now, we really do appreciate you taking your time to join ours. We wanted to just take a, I'm going to just take a few seconds to talk a little bit more about uh, our presentation today and what's going on. So we're going to speak about behaviors. Behaviors and triggers need to be understood, navigated through, and success plans need to be created. There are personalities and influences both at work and at home that can influence a behavior. There's all kinds of different traits, and we know a bunch of these through our years of study. And people can react differently to the same event. Influences such as peer pressure, prior exposure, risk tolerance, lack of understanding, or a reluctance to step forward can certainly impact their ability to behave. When we're looking at, and people also will respond to external and internal stimuli. When we're looking at organizational behavior, that's twofold. Organizational behavior can be people or companies. Groups of people can react differently to the same event versus individuals. How someone might act themselves and how someone might act when they're in a group can be two different ways. The same with organizations. You may not realize it, but they have behaviors as well. They have their own set of risk tolerances and the same traits that can be found in people just as well. I wanted to just take a quick second and share some historical incidents that are worth mentioning. 
Of course, we all know Chernobyl, and that, of course, was where the uh, term city culture was coined from. Obviously, the Challenger, a terrible, terrible event for America and certainly for anyone. Deepwater Horizon, well-known, well-publicized. Uh, Ten years ago this year in April, Deepwater Horizon happened. And then we have clean energy. And while a lot of people aren't aware of clean energy, this happened shortly after Deepwater Horizon. And this was in the result of a welding operation, inappropriate lockout tagout, obviously a purging event. There was a new construction site for a power company in Connecticut. And again, these are all of these people in all of these events are highly skilled, trained craftsmen, engineers, executives, scientists. It doesn't matter what their position is in the org chart. Something influenced their behaviors that created these extremely negative events. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. And I certainly have the great fortune to introduce Drs. Scott and Krista Geller. And I'm going to return, uh, turn this over to Dr. Krista Geller right now. Thank you so much, Lori. So appreciative to be here. And if anyone knows me, I always enjoy speaking with my father. And I will tell you, he, he is the theorist. He is the behaviorist. And, and he talks about all this stuff. And the reason we come together so well is my experience of boots on the ground. And so, you know, dad will come with these amazing theories and these ideas and how we can get people to moderate their behavior and, and be motivated. And then I come with, well, what, what about when we have this problem? What about when people aren't motivated and they don't want to listen? What do we do then? And I bring the boots on the ground experience. So. Dad's going to take it away here, and I, being his daughter, I feel as though I have every right to interrupt him as often as I possibly want, so I will chime in. But for now, uh, please welcome Scott Geller. Thank you, Krista. Yeah, we have worked together for a long time, and she actually called me a behaviorist, and I used to be called that. Today, I'm calling myself a humanistic behaviorist, and we're going to explain that. So. We started behavior-based safety right here at Virginia Tech in 1979, and we, we made some improvements. I went to a lot of safety conferences in those days, and I, I couldn't believe what people were saying. For example, take these slogans. People used to talk like this, but we, we don't anymore thanks to behavior-based safety. For example, we used to say, think safety, you know, not that thinking is wrong, but we can't really deal very well with thinking. Safety is a priority. No, it's a value. How about this? The word accident, we don't like that word. It implies chance. And all accidents are preventable is an oxymoron. Because if it's things are due to chance, we can't prevent them. How about this one? We used to say this. Safety is a condition of employment. How does that make you feel? And then zero accidents is our goal. Again, I just throw these up here to show you that we used to talk like that. That's how we used to talk out there, but we've changed. We've gotten better. By the way, zero injuries is our vision. Oh, I, I, I pushed the wrong button to move forward. Sorry. And then how about this one? An accident investigation. I mean, what a word. We don't investigate. We analyze. All I'm saying is, I'm going to go quickly, safety re regulations are passed down from management with no rationale. It used to be that way. Just do it because I said so. 
the root cause of an injury. We really believe we can find the root cause. You ask why, how many times? Have you heard this so many times? Ask why five times and you get to the root cause. As a researcher, I laugh at that because that's not root cause. You look for contributing factors. The root cause is impossible to find through an interview. Anyway, again, we used to talk like this. A safety incentive program rewards the, the work team with fewest injuries. We actually rewarded people if your work team didn't have an injury. But you know what you stifled? The reporting of injuries. Of course, we know that today. So I'm just showing these that we've improved. We've gotten a lot better. We used to have safe employee of the month program, a worker each month for having the best safety attitude. Three unsafe behaviors and the worker is sent home. Again, behavior-based safety came on board and said we have to be research-based. We have to focus on behavior. And these things, workers are penalized after returning to work after a lost time injury. All right, bottom line is we've, got, we've gone a long way, but we still have some places to go. Let me start you by showing those are my two heroes up there. On the left is B.S. Skinner. He's a behaviorist. On the right is a statistician, W. Edwards Deming. He changed my perspective back in 1991 when I went to a four-day workshop and listened to Dr. Deming. By the way, there were 600 of us there in 1991. We all paid $1,000 a piece to get some profound knowledge from this individual. And he was a humanist. Let's look at just some, just some quotes for these guys and explain. This is selection by consequences, and we all know this. Immediate consequences outweigh delayed consequences. And let's understand that a consequence can be positive or it can be negative. I keep pushing. I'm sorry, I got used to this. Deming, don't blame people for problems created by this system. Deming taught me the system's perspective. People support that which they help to create. That's definitely a humanistic perspective. Even though he was a statistician, the st statistical process control, perhaps you've heard about that. Deming turned things around in Japan in the 50s. In God we trust, all others bring data. Just a few quotes to get us going. I want to introduce, however, a book that Chris and I published back in 2017, and there are seven life lessons or safety lessons in this book, and that's what we're going to review today. We're going to quickly go over the seven basic lessons in this book. This particular book teaches you how to develop an actively caring for people culture or an injury-free culture. And this is the book that it was mentioned at the beginning. Um, this is our very latest. It was just published. In fact, the copyright date is 2021. And this book was designed to teach people how to teach others. I've been frustrated over the years as I finished my 50th year at Virginia Tech. There's so much pop psychology. But I can't blame these folks. They just don't know better. But Chris and I put together the science of psychology in such a way that you can use this book to teach others. And again, this book... Hey, I give this to consultants. I want the consultants to teach the right stuff. So, hey, consultants, you can use this book to teach the right stuff when it comes to the human dynamics of safety. All right, seven lessons.
seven lessons. And by the way, these are research-based. But as we share them with you, you're going to be saying to yourself, I knew that. You knew that. It seems like common sense. For example, isn't it not common sense that we ought to use more positive consequences than negative consequences to manage behavior? Let me say up front, too, behaviorism, B.F. Skinner, manage behavior. Humanism, lead people. We manage behavior and we lead people. By the end of this presentation today, you'll understand exactly what I mean by that. This and is I, I kind of want to jump in here. Yeah, this is one of my favorite slides, only because I've walked so many job sites with so many safety managers, and this was the exact culture we had on that job site. And it's the opposite of what you were just saying, Dad, that we want to lead people. We want to motivate people. And this kind of behavior sets you out to be the police officer. And nothing against, you know, police officers aren't negative, but usually when you get pulled over, they don't often say that was great driving back there, here's a voucher off your next ticket. Usually you have a pretty, hey, you were speeding, and, and so, you know, people like to say, oh, well, I'm the police officer on my job site. No, you're not writing tickets. No, you're, you're having a positive communication. You're, you're trying to change that, safety, that, that behavior, that at-risk behavior, to a safe behavior. And you're also trying to learn from that employee. The other thing I want to say is stop always assuming our employees are not doing the safe behavior because they're trying to avoid it. Walk into the situation and assume that that person doesn't know the safe behavior or that they don't recognize what they're supposed to be doing, or maybe they were never told. And that's what we have to be careful of. We're so quick to say to ourselves, you're breaking the rules. And people don't come to work and say to themselves, I'm going to get hurt today. They want to be safe, but I think we need to keep in our minds, and you'll get a lot of that through this continuous presentation, that don't go in blindly. Don't go in with your, you know, with your premature cognitive commitment. Go in and assume that that person might not know the safe behavior and communicate it to them that way with a positive reflection. That's how you will lead the people in your organization. Carry on, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal loves that word, premature cognitive commitment. I taught her that when she's a little girl, and she's been using it ever since. You're showing your PCC, Dad. You're showing your PCC. You're not... You're not opening to the current things. You're letting your past influence your perception. Anyway, here we go. The most efficient, the most efficient way to improve behavior is with positive consequences. Positive consequences, however, should be soon, frequent, and based on behavior. What is this strange and beautiful feeling inside of me? Rays of ecstasy are pulsing through my soul. That is why I only give positive reinforcement once a year. I'm all tingling. Scott Adams really has his pulse of the culture. And, you know, we do use the word positive reinforcement, but it's used incorrectly. Positive reinforcement is only positive reinforcement if the consequence increases the behavior it follows. Alice, is a bonus for your good work. On what? I can't be specific because then you might do it again and expect another bonus. Congratulations, you motivated me to act randomly. I'm going over here and I don't know why. Again, the misuse 
of positive consequences. And here's one more. Ted gets a singular achievement award. By the way, we used to do this. Give people rewards for the singular award. It's a check for $1,000. Let's all give Ted a hand. Or perhaps you've had a lottery, and you pull out the lottery ticket, and there's one winner for the lottery. Let's see if we'll give this person a hand. Slap whack. Oh, these things never work the way they want them to. We have to really sit back and understand what you're doing when you use positive consequences incorrectly. When we got married 20 years ago, I said, I love you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Isn't that, is that not our culture? Is that, in fact, I gave a webinar not too long ago and I used the word consequences, positive consequences, and the host says, isn't that an oxymoron? Can a consequence be positive? Because we're so used to thinking a consequence as being negative. But you have to be aware of the behavior you're rewarding. Krista can relate to this with her son right now. Um, okay, now will you please stop crying? How often do we reward behavior? Now, in this situation, yeah, the girl stopped crying because she got her pony, and dad gets to avoid the crying. And that's called negative reinforcement. When you do something to avoid an aversive consequence, that's negative reinforcement. Watch. Be careful what behavior you're rewarding. And how, here's a big one. Here's a big one. Reward effort, not ability. Perfect routines through the year are natural. How often have you called people smart, brilliant, natural? That's ability. That's ability. And you know what happens when you, when you reward ability? People don't want to take on challenges for fear they will lose that label of bright or brilliant or athletic. Focus on behavior. Awesome. Now I don't have to practice since she's a natural. So be careful with that. Be careful that you don't start labeling um, traits. As Laurie said, start, it's, it's a trait. By the way, I want to introduce the word state. Traits are considered relatively permanent. Like, you know, you have a certain personality trait, but a state is something that we can change. Here's a big one. Positive consequences promote success seeking. I want people to be success seekers. Negative consequences promote failure avoiding. So how do you keep score when it comes to safety? Are you a failure avoider or a success seeker? Do you talk about what have we done for safety or do you talk about we didn't have an injury? Here's a chart. Do you seek success or do you avoid failure? Now, perhaps you're saying it depends. Yes. In some situations like productivity, it's how many widgets have you made, you know? But with safety, very often the focus on avoiding failure. And I'm not saying we should stop keeping score on, on errors. But what if we focus on what have you done for safety? Chris and I have run, I've run uh, safety, safety meetings where we, we call it a safety share. We ask the group, okay, let's talk about what you've done for safety. Someone raise their hand. Well, I didn't get hurt. And I say, no, no. What behavior? What have you done for safety? Or what will you do for safety? Again, it's promoting the idea of success seeker. Will he run? Yeah, he'll run. He's running to avoid failure. He's running to avoid getting hurt. Will he continue running when the coach is not around to hold him accountable? That's the issue. 
That's why we talk about leading people with positive consequences. Always sit, stay, heal. Never sit, innovate, or be yourself. How about this one? But the sign says only shirt and shoes required. So here the focus is on avoiding failure, and the kid wants to beat the system. And how often does that happen? B.F. Skinner called that counter-control. Sometimes we want to assert our freedom, so we'll do the opposite if we know we're not going to get caught. It's also been called psychological reactance. We react to assert, to demonstrate our freedom, especially in our country. Okay, how about natural consequences? Some consequences are natural. We call that intrinsic. So these folks are getting natural consequences. With safety, it's tough to get it. To wear, wearing a personal protective equipment is not naturally comfortable. So we have to sometimes use extrinsic consequences. Extra consequences, however, can, can limit sustainability. That's correct, Billy, but you don't win a prize this time. Billy is expecting an extrinsic consequence, a reward. And what the teacher has failed to do is to show Billy the natural consequences, the purpose. Billy, you solved the problem. Yes, two plus two is four. Talking about the achievement, same with safety. If we talked about what people have done for safety and how that avoided an injury, then we would make it more natural, more intrinsic. It's the process. Make the process meaningful. Two workers, one guy, what are you doing? He's laying block. He's a line worker thinking about money he's making. But the other dude has a bigger picture kind of a systems thinker. He's got greater purpose in mind. Yeah, he's making money, but he's also building a community center. And that's what I suggest how we talk about safety. We're here to make it better for everyone. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and wow, we have to teach people that the, way, the reason you wear that mask is to protect others. It's frankly not personal protective equipment. It's public protective equipment. If we had started doing that back in March, think about how many lives would be would have been saved. All right, number two. By the way, when you wear a mask, you're setting the example for others to wear the mask, and that's called observational learning. One of my favorite quotes, because it's mine, if you want to be better at what you do, observe someone who performs better than you. There's a, there's Krista driving with her mom. What did you learn to drive so fast, young lady? Move over, stupid. Make up your mind. Jeffrey, what are you doing? Driving like daddy. We set examples every day. And people see us. And they follow our example. How about this? There's a dog. He's got a problem. The master, dad's going to figure things out. He's going to go out and demonstrate for the dog. Look at the dog now. <laughs> See, he's following example. Number three, this is a powerful one, folks. Let's understand the need to give feedback. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanence. We need feedback. And there's also the word feed forward. 
Let's understand that difference between forward and feedback. Here's the difference. Here you are. Here's the person. The ABC model, perhaps you've heard about this, but in between the activator or the antecedent condition is the person who perceives and then the behavior, the consequence. Now, if I give instructions before the behavior, that's a feed forward. Feed forward. If I give information after the behavior as a consequence, that's called feedback. So important to give feedback. The feedback needs to be sincere, specific, and soon. Bonnie, we're, making, we're getting some feedback way up here. Yeah, that's too late. Specify the desirable behavior. So let's talk about giving feedback. Specify the feedback. Well, at least I know you're not cheating. <laughs> Dad, you're trying to be positive, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about specifying room for improvement, but first perhaps you want to give some supportive feedback to get people on board. I want you to become a behavior-based feed-forward and feedback coach. Now, I've, I've been teaching here for 50 years, and this here is my favorite acronym of all times. And I share it with you. Hopefully, you will, hopefully you'll think about it and maybe practice it. So what do the letters of coach mean? C means care. Know that I care, and you care what I know. I'm here to give you feedback because I care. And I care so much I'm going to observe your behavior. Just your behavior. We're not talking about attitudes or feelings, you know, or your personality. It's just your behavior. And we all behave differently and we all need sometimes a coach. Okay? And by the way, while I'm observing you, I'm analyzing. I'm looking around to see. What might be influencing at-risk behavior and what is perhaps missing to facilitate safe behavior? Then, the big C, the next C is to communicate. You know, people are practicing behavior-based safety worldwide. The consultants took that over. And I must say, um, they're not necessarily doing it right. They got their numbers. They watched with a, with a behavioral checklist, and then they put those checklists in a computer program, and then they read out those numbers. But they missed this piece right here. There needs to be communication between the observer and the worker. And a major challenge is to teach people how to communicate effectively. You give supportive feedback directly. Specify the behavior. Show gratitude and appreciation. But when it comes to correcting behavior, corrective feedback, you need to become humanistic. You ask questions. You ask questions. You ask why. Is there a better way to do that? Is that as safe as it could be? And by the way, if you do that correctly, if you do communicate effectively, then the last letter will be help. You will, be, you will help the person to improve their behavior. Now, Krista, tell them about the license yes, plate. I do. I want to. I want to give a little introduction to this this humanistic behaviorist that I grew up with. And I think the first point to show you is that yes, this was our license plate, and this is our license plate from every vehicle you can imagine was built up. 
which kind of gives you an idea of what kind of humanistic behaviorism he was. So let's collect data. And the first data job he ever gave to me, I was five years old. He said, I have a research experiment I would like you to do. I'm five. And what he wants me to do is he wants you to hold up this sign in the passenger window to vehicles that we see. And hey, please buckle up, I care. And I'm supposed to flash this sign. We have two researchers in the back seat, dad's driving. Mind you, I'm five. And I looked at him and I said, no way. So the, he didn't have very many more people to reach for. So he went for my three-year-old sister. So yes, this is my sister. Please buckle up, I care. Now, if they did buckle up, she'd flip the sign. Thank you for buckling up. Now, I'll tell you, this is one of the few research experiments she participated in. I think she started catching on at the age of three that this wasn't a very cool thing to do, especially when she started getting several hand signals. And dad would say, oh, don't worry, honey. They're just telling you you're number one. They're just using the wrong finger. So today, my sister feels incredibly special because I guess a lot of people on the road tell her she is number one. So just to continue, this is 1983. This is the kind of safety belt research my father was doing. And, and, and actually, just to go back to this last slide a second, this is my son, which I, I put this picture in there because it clearly shows this is still the license plate that my dad is sporting on the vehicle. So next what he did was for years, I watched him board a plane with the airline lifesaver. And he would pass this to the flight attendant and ask them, would you please read this safety message before we exit the plane, included in all the wonderful stuff they tell us before we leave. And it says, now that you have worn your seatbelt, which now we really talk about our seatbelt as our safety belt. So now that you have worn your safety belt for the safest part of your trip, the flight crew would like to remind you to buckle up during your ground transportation. And this was exciting. Oh, he loved this. He passed this on every flight. He flew on so many flights. And he passed this around, got so much attention. And then, of course, you know, people didn't always read it. So how do you motivate people to do things? Well, you didn't catch an incentive. So he came out with an incentive attached to these cards, you know, encouraging flight attendants, you know, please read my message. And he got wind of a message that went across throughout the airlines that said, watch out for the professor with the blue card. Now, those of you that might have known my dad or read his materials over the years, you know, my father doesn't give up, doesn't give up on anything, which is probably a great thing, right? So when he heard this message, what did he do? He made yellow ones. Nothing stopped him. Nothing stopped him from getting his message across. And that's why I bring you to this next slide, which is my favorite, because I want to say very seldom do we as safety professionals know that we're on the right track. Very seldom do we get a thank you or are we told, hey, you know what? You saved my life last week. We don't get that message. And with that, that means we have to stay internally motivated. We have to keep ourselves motivated. We have to look in the mirror and say, you're doing a good job to yourself because we don't get enough of that at work. So what did dad receive in the mail? 1994, he received a thank you from an individual that was on a flight that heard the message the flight attendant read, saying, now that you're on your, your travels, please remember to buckle up during your ground transportation. And this was back in 1994. This is when you had to really stick your fingers in the, in the seats to find the safety belts. You know, you had to work hard to buckle up. Nowadays, you get an Uber or any of those cars, and there's always safety belt signs, buckle up. 
this is when you had to really search. And this individual searched. He actually took the time to find the safety belt, and he notes in his letters because of the message that was on the flight before he left. So that message from the flight attendant put it in his mind. It, he was mindful of the task at hand. So when he got in the back seat of that cab, he buckled up, and he made sure he buckled up. What happened? At 70 miles per hour, the taxi hydroplaned and struck a guardrail. And he stated that it, if it hadn't been for the safety belt, he thinks it could have been much worse. He really just suffered a, a neck and shoulder injury. But down highlighted I have, in safety, it is seldom we can point to a particular event we can take credit for. This one is for you. Oh, dear. That's all Dr. Geller needed to keep his message moving. Because we don't – now, in those of you out there that have those, I bet you have it framed and somewhere so it's visually. So you can look at it and say, you know what? There's somebody that I impacted. There's somebody I made a difference with. And that's why Dad and I started actively caring for people, because we don't do enough of that. We don't say thank you enough. Look at how this changed him. He uses this in a PowerPoint. Think about the times and the messages people have given you and, and personally said thank you, how it's touched you, how it's affected you. And with actively caring for people, that's what we ask for more, because if you want to have safety conditions and you want to change people's mindset, you have to start saying thank you. Let people know, I appreciate what you did for me. I appreciate it. So as you can imagine, my father's been my AC4P coach my whole life, right? You know, some of them have been asked and some of them, you know, with the report card have not been so asked for, but I appreciate that. So you can't imagine the time he calls me up and he says, I got a ticket. Well, just know the drawing of my mother driving the car. Uh, no, no, no. My father has the lead foot in the family as well. So when he told me he got a ticket, I immediately thought to myself, oh, you, have, you have a lead foot. No, this is really funny. And he said, no, look closely. I got the ticket for not wearing my safety belt. Now, this goes back to what Lori said in the very beginning. Even the best make mistakes. Now, don't you agree? The entire introduction I've given you of him and his safety belt experience, would you not say he's an expert? Would you not say that when he gets in the vehicle, buckling his safety belt is probably the first thing he does? Yeah, it's been in his life, and man, has he preached it to mine. So it's a, it's a value. It's something I live because of him. But what? What happened? He forgot to buckle up. And he said when the police officer pulled him over and said, you're not buckled, he thought, what? Yes, I am. And reached a boat on his shoulder, and lo and behold, he wasn't buckled. It was shocking. And I said, and, oh, and he's distraught, folks. Let me tell you, he is distraught. Not because he had a $25 ticket, but it's the principle of the thing. This is Superman of safety belts, and he's got a safety belt violation? No. And I said, Dad, this is beautiful. This is why we have coaches. This is why we have AC4P mentors. This is why we look out for each other. This is why we have human performance. Because as Lori said in the very beginning, even the best make mistakes. And if you don't have those coaches, if you don't have the police officers on the road, I say thank you to them every day. Because when I see a police officer on the road or, or on the other side or driving, I immediately check my behavior. I check my speed. I check everything. Thank you to him. He's an actively caring for agent for me. He may not know it, but that's how I see him. 
know, I look at that cop as a reminder, hey, am I doing everything safe? Because we all get wrapped up in the behaviors that we're performing, and we don't always remember to do the safe behavior. So that's why we have actively caring for people agents. Which brings me really quick to human performance, and I want to tag a little bit on what Lori said because this is one of my favorite topics. When we talk about safety and we talk about the environment, think about this a minute. I'm in a workshop and I'm training, and the walls are covered with beautiful whiteboards, and I've written all over them. And it's about 20 minutes into me writing all over these boards, I notice this sign, only use dry erase on this whiteboard. Now, my heart stopped for a brief second, so I looked down and saw Okay, it's not a Sharpie. It is a dry erase. But here's my question. If you don't want me using a dry erase, I mean, if you don't want me using a Sharpie, don't put it in the room, right? Don't set the environment up so that I have to be cognizant every second. Because look, we make five to 10 mistakes every hour. Experts. I mean, we have an expert safety belt man who forgot to buckle up. So, don't put the Sharpie in the environment if you don't want me to use it. And that's why I ask you, when you set up an environment for your safety professionals, your employees, your job site, take a look around. Look at what you're putting in that environment that could cause a human error, that could cause an injury because somebody wasn't able to focus on it the entire time. Take the time to evaluate the environment you put your folks into and figure out how can you make it safer. Thank you. Back to you, Dad. Oh, it's beautiful. What can I say? Except we move on. And I just felt some feedback from my daughter. So use more supportive than corrective feedback. This is quick. Hey, what did your supervisor say? I mean, how often does that happen? Your supervisor wants to see you in his office at the end of the day. Has he ruined your day? Do you expect negative consequences? Or perhaps you're pleased, but this is more often the case. Of course, well, and think Kristen, about this. this yeah, think about this a second, folks. Think about this culture. You know, I, I, I was looking at this cartoon one time with a friend of mine, and a friend of mine said, no, no, no. When my supervisor calls me into the room, I check my shirt because I know my picture is going to be taken because I've done something amazing. Think about it. Have you had a supervisor? Or maybe we should say, have you had a leader in that kind of role that set the culture to the point where when he or she calls you into their office, you can't wait to go? And I'm sure of, of, the, of those of you that are on this webinar, you have. You can think back to that person in your life that set it up so that when you got called into their office, you knew you were going to be given some positive feedback on what you might have done good. And that's the kind of culture you want to drive more. Absolutely. Including with this one. Including this. This is actively caring, folks. This is actively caring. This is lending a hand when you know people can't give it back. It's the same thing with this environment we're in now with face masks. I carry an extra face mask with me in a Ziploc bag because I've run into several people who don't have one. I mean, I've been in an elevator and people are like, I'm, I can't get on. I don't have a face mask. I forgot it. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm able to pull one out of my purse and say, listen, it's been in a Ziploc bag since I got it. Here, you can have it. Because that way I'm able to change their life. Not only are, am I, you know, dad said personal protective 
Now it's public protective. Now I've given them something that not only allows them to feel better, but allows them to feel as though they're protecting the people around them. So think about those small wins you can do that can affect the people around you, and that's actively caring for people. Right on. Oh, man, we got about 10 minutes, Krista, so we're going to move quickly, folks. But this is an important lesson. Let's understand empathy. That's humanism. Now, those, those first four, that was clearly behaviorism. Now we're moving into the humanistic side. Empathy requires an emotional connection. Do you have empathy? You know what I mean? That's not sympathy. Empathy means you can see it from the other person's perspective. What do you mean I'm disconnected and out of touch? I have email, a smartphone, text messaging, Facebook, and Twitter. And you're still out of touch. You know, we have lost social connection with people these days because of the convenient digital communication. Empathic listening is special and rare. Let's look at listening. At the bottom is ignore. How often have you been ignored? Have you felt ignored? Press one to be ignored, press two to be ignored longer. Sure, you felt that way on that telephone. Then we have pretend. Sometimes we pretend to be listening, but we're really thinking about what we're going to say next. How often is that happening? You're listening in an argument and you're thinking about your next response rather than listening to what the person is saying. But here's the most common, selective listening. And indeed, it's related to what Krista said earlier, premature cognitive commitment. Our listening is affected by our experience. That looks like a windshield to me, Doc. I mean, that's what the bug sees. I love this one, you know. She's trying to warn him of a pig. There's a word, premature cognitive commitment. He's yelling roadhog. The only one who gets it is the dog because he doesn't have PCC. Then, we are, then we're attentive. Attentive is better than selective. Attentive is when we put aside our biases and we try to bring it all in. It's tough these days in politics, isn't it? It's really, we don't want to go there. Aha, Biff, guess what? After we go to the drugstore and the post office, I'm going to the vets to get tutored. <laughs> no, he wasn't attentive. But here's the top. The top is empathic. The top is empathic. I can show that. No, honey. Mom says, I saw the table, not I have seen a table. So the kid really saw the table, but the mom is not seeing it from her perspective. Stephen Covey taught us this in Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. Speak first to understand before being understood. Treat people as they want to be treated. Now, my slide doesn't have treated at the end. I don't know whether yours does, but... Treat people as they want to be treated. That's the platinum rule. That's the platinum rule. So the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. But maybe they don't want to be treated the way you want to be treated. Number six. I'm moving quickly, folks. Thank you. How about self-motivation? How about self-motivation? You activate behavior with empowerment. What is empowerment? Well, the management definition of empowerment is giving people more responsibility with fewer resources. I empower you. But the psychological definition, the humanistic definition is beyond that. Let's look at it. Empowerment means feeling. This is humanistic. 
Three beliefs. I believe I can do it. Self-efficacy. I believe I can do it. By the way, that's training. You train people to do the job. Is that enough to feel empowered? Never mind why. Just go fetch. They can do it. But how do they feel? The next one is response efficacy. Will what you're asking me to do work? To reduce injuries, for example, this coaching process, will it work? Show me the data. By the way, that's education. Is there a difference between training and education? I've said this for years. You know, we train people and we educate people. Is there a difference? I think you know the difference. Would you like your kids to get sex education or sex training? And they might like training. Because training implies you do the behavior and you get feedback. How about driving? Is driver ed enough? I don't think so. We need feedback. We need training. One more. Outcome expectancy. This is the motivation. So I've got a training piece. I have an education piece. And this is the consequence piece. Is it worth doing? Humanists would call it outcome expectancy. Put it all together. Feeling empowered requires those three beliefs. I can do it. Will it work? Is it worth it? If they can say yes, they feel empowered. Let's talk about SMART goals. You've heard SMART goals. Zig Ziglar talks about SMART goals. We've got something a little bit different. We're talking about SMART goals. Some of it is the same. The S, yeah. Specifically, what are you going to do? So, but this is why zero injuries is not a goal. It's a vision. Goals are what you're going to do on a daily basis to get the job done. Okay, S for specific. What's the M? Now, some of you have heard Zig Ziglar and some of the other, you're thinking measurable. No, I'm calling it motivational because I want to connect it to feeling empowered. So motivational means I know what we're going to do if we get there. A, achievable, a self-efficacy. Well, this is connecting to feeling empowered. And relevant is response efficacy. So I didn't use M for measurable because I got T for trackable. If I can track it, I can measure it. And I'm adding an S. We're adding an S here because we're going to share our goal with others because they might help to hold us accountable. And wow, well, the time is going quickly, folks. Quick, this, check this out. You got your vision. You feel empowered. You set a goal. Behavior. I heard a pop psychologist once says, vision without a goal is just dreaming. And goal setting without a vision is just marking time. Put them together to get behavior. Yeah, first time, one time. But if you don't get a consequence, to support that behavior, you're going to get extinction. It will stop. This is this is just, Krista and I have done this, you know. You want to watch contingency management, you know. Put one of these signs where you when you go out to eat, your tip so far, and when they do something nice, add some dollar bills and take some away if they don't, and you will see a change in their behavior. That's called contingency management. That's controlled by consequences. That's other-directed behavior. Here's another example of other-directed behavior. Why aren't you wearing your safety glasses? I didn't see you coming. It's other-directed. So there's other-directed, meaning 
Somebody else is holding us accountable. That's management. But then there's also self-directed. Self-directed is self-motivation, okay? Self-motivation. It's self-directed. Will he put on his hard hat? There's nobody there to hold him accountable. He needs to be self-directed. I can't tell you anything more important than this here. The perception, this is very much humanism, the perception of choice, competence, and community fuel self-motivation. So if you want people to feel self-motivated, they need to feel some choice, competence, and community. And again, there's so much to say about this. You can check out my TED Talk, my TEDx Talk. Just Google my name, TEDx. I, I give a 15-minute talk on self-motivation. And I'm kind of proud of this. I've got over 9 million views now in over seven years. It was posted seven years ago. But it does teach the essence of self-motivation. Number seven, here we are, self-actualization. The top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what? Right? Needs suggest which consequences are motivating. Again, Abraham Maslow was a humanist. Higher needs reflect self-motivation. Check it out. Do you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? There it is. Perhaps you've seen it this way. This is the way they teach it in introductory psychology textbooks. Satisfy your physiological needs, your safety needs. Then you can worry about social acceptance and then your self-esteem and then self-actualization. Abraham Maslow passed away in 1970 at the age of 62, by the way. And before he passed away, he said he was wrong. The top of his hierarchy is not self-actualization. Notice, all of this is about self, self-esteem, self-actualization. He said he was wrong. The highest need is not about self. It's self-transcendence. It's self-transcendence. And what do we call it? Actively caring for people. Actively caring for people behavior is fueled by a win-win interdependent mindset. Isn't it true that when you go beyond yourself to help somebody else, it fuels your own self-esteem, your own self-actualization, your own sense of connected. Son, it's not whether you win or lose unless you want daddy's love. Sometimes we promote win-lose. But I'll tell you what, within the team, within the team, they've got self-transcendence. They've got a connection within each other. Win-win. Let me just, we're getting toward the end. Let me say some things about the actively caring for people movement. We have a wristband. It says actively caring for people. There's a leader in the field, Marty Seligman, started positive psychology back in 1998. He's wearing a wristband. Another leader, football player, perhaps you know Terry Bradshaw. He's wearing a wristband. The wristband says actively caring for people. Michelle Obama's wearing a wristband. Now, however, we, wristbands have identification number. In the old days, it just was actively caring for people. Now, it's got an identification number. Every wristband has a different number. Check it out. We call it the step process. This is how it works. You look for an act of kindness. C in step. When you see it, you thank that person with a wristband. 
and then they take the wristband and they enter the number of that wristband at our website, ac4p.org, activelycaringforpeople.org, and then they're told, don't keep the wristband, pass it on. By the way, we've got blue wristbands for police officers. And right, the wristbands are, are at that website. The stories are there, thousands of stories. We're, we're spreading positive gossip, actively caring for people. And this is, and we, by the way, I did say we have blue wristbands where police officers in three different states now, we've taught them these basic principles. I just taught you, we have a workbook that teaches these seven principles for police officers. And police officers give citizens a blue wristband if they see an act of kindness. Our favorite quote, my favorite quote, in this era of social transition, and boy, we're in transition right now, aren't we, folks? The greatest tragedy is not the blurring noisiness of the so-called bad people. It's the appalling silence of the so-called good people. What are we saying? We need to speak up, folks. Most of us, we get it. We need to talk about it. And thank you very much. And, and now we have some time for questions. Excellent. Yeah, great job, Lori, Kristen, Scott. Thank you for your insights and expertise. Actually received an email from an attendee during the presentation saying the information was great and the presentation energy was refreshing. Uh, before we do start that Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. With that, we'll get to some questions. First, what terms should we use instead of the root cause analysis and incident, excuse me, incident investigations? Oh, beautiful. Well, it's not an investigation. It's an analysis. And it's not root cause. It's contributing factors. So here's the, here's the approach. What are the factors? What are the factors we need to consider that might have influenced this injury? We don't get a cause and effect. Only researchers can study cause and effect. To do cause and effect, you have to manipulate the independent variable and look at its effect on the dependent variable. Through surveys, you're looking for contributing factors. Environmental factors, and this is, again, human performance, isn't it? What are the environmental factors that might have influenced that behavior? And what are the, there are personality traits. I like the word state because a state means it can change. But what are they? And what, what are the communications going on? Was there some observational learning out there? What are the factors that contributed to that behavior and perhaps the injury? How would the results of the behaviors be if instead of observing, we put the focus on listening to the conversations prior to the action? Oh, interesting. Well, you know, I've said recently that maybe we should be considering intentions. Now, this is very humanistic. You know, you're looking at behavior, but when you have that communication, you might ask the person, what were your intentions? And people were perhaps more likely to say something like, yeah, you know, I intended to do it safely, but, and it's that but that will teach us some factors that could influence a potential injury. So I think listening is so critical 
but it's how you come across. If you come across, that's wrong. I noticed you did seven at-risk behaviors. I mean, that's, that's a turnoff. Like the word investigation, it's a turnoff. So we need people to speak up. And to speak up, we have to invite the, that conversation. So consider perhaps, say, okay, ask more questions. Why do we do it this way? Is there a better way? How do you curb someone's at-risk behaviors when they justify and neglect the at-risk behaviors? Say that again. How do you what? How would you curb someone's at-risk behaviors when they justify and neglect the at-risk behaviors? When they, well, you know, we always try to justify, don't we? We make up excuses. Is that what we're saying? We're right. saying, yes? Christy, you want to add yes. something there? Yeah, well, that's, that's what, you know, because it's always easy to make an excuse for what we do. But I think it goes back to the second question that you just answered as well. So if they're going to continue making excuses, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned on the job site is don't fight and don't argue, but listen. So it's exactly what you said. They're going to listen to their excuses. Let them talk. Let them, let them know that you're listening because then when you offer the necessary feedback they need to perform that safe behavior, at least they know that you've listened to them. And let's be honest, there are going to be some people that aren't ever going to want to do the behavior. We still see people walking around with their masks off, and we've provided all the necessary data for why you should wear a mask. So it's, it's that kind of that kind of problem that we can run into. So all you can do is continue listening and continue sharing the educational material they might need to perform that safe behavior. And provide a rationale for why we're asking you to do that. These people who are not wearing masks, I have to wonder if they really understand why they should be wearing that mask. And of course, we have politicians who don't set the right example by wearing the mask. So we're in an awkward situation. We've made COVID-19 a political issue. And how sad is that? Next question is asking, what's the best practice to change the mindset of hourly employees? Um, they, they say here that the concepts are great, but they feel they're more geared to corporate, corporate and salaried employees. So what, what would you advise to change the mindset of hourly employees? Wow. My feeling is that this is all relevant to, to hourly employees. I mean, the notion of, of actively listening and with empathy, the notion of, of looking for contributing factors, the notion of giving rationale to why we do what we do, the, whole, the notion of actively caring for people. Right, Krista? I mean, this, this is clearly... An hourly worker perspective. In fact, that's what we hope happens: is that these principles are taught by hourly workers to hourly workers. But I guess it has to start somewhere. So maybe you need your your safety professional or supervisor to teach it. But indeed, I'm I'm hoping that we see this as really an, a mindset for hourly workers. Kristen, yeah, what do you and think? well, it also comes. Well, yes, it also comes down to also inviting those hourly workers into some of the meetings that only the salary workers are there. You know, you've got to provide those hourly workers with autonomy. They've got to feel like they have a choice and that they have a voice, that they're not just walking in a path that you've created for them, but instead that they're walking in a situation that they have power. They, they're being listened to. And I think many times why you might get hourly workers that walk away is because they've come, they've put in their hours, and they've left. 
but let's give them something to drive towards. Let's give them positive consequences. Let's ask for their voice, which goes to if you're going to ask for their voice, if you're going to take the time to put out a survey or get people's opinion, you also have to let them know what other people said. You have to share the data. And I think if you have more people talking about it, including the hourly workers, everybody, then you'll get more people participating. Let me add one more thing as to support what Krista just said. Do you have a safety suggestion system? Do you have a system in place where hourly workers, by the way, they know what, where the risks are. They know where the environment needs to be fixed to make a safer environment. They know what at-risk behavior is occurring. Do you have a safety suggestion system where the hourly workers can provide suggestions and people are listening to those suggestions and adjusting perhaps the environment or the or our policy to fix those suggestions. When you do that, man, you have a system where the behavior that is a suggestion is supported by natural consequences. They're listening to me. I'm going to keep providing input to make this workplace safer for all. Okay, we've got time for got time for one more question, and it asks, "What is the best way to motivate people to own their own safety?" Oh, well, you got to get them involved, don't you? Ownership means feeling empowered. Okay, yep. ownership means self motivation. Please check out check out that TED talk on self motivation. Understand these three C words. Three C words. If we believe we're competent at doing worthwhile work, we're more likely to be self-motivated. So we have to communicate in a way that people believe, they feel the gratitude, they feel the appreciation that they're competent at doing worthwhile work. And how about that word community? We are, we all are in this together. Everybody has a piece of the action. Their skills are being used so the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And, of course, the perception of choice. Yeah, there's some things we have to do. We, don't, we, we can't drive our vehicles as fast as we would like to, you know. But the perception of choice, you know, Deming said people are more involved when they had some choice in the process. Okay, well, uh, no, we, we thank you all very kindly, and unfortunately we've run out of time today. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to provide your feedback. Uh, with that, we'll end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Laurie Canopy, Krista Geller, Scott Geller, everyone in Aveda, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.